During the Advent season, we once again pause to reflect upon the greatest gift mankind has ever received, the hope of liberation from sin, death, and the tyranny of man. This sermon focuses upon the great commission of dominion that was given to Adam in the Garden of Eden. This is the second sermon in a four-part series. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. Our all covenant reading coming once again from Genesis, Genesis and chapter 1, the book of beginnings, the beginning one, giving us the declaration of creation, Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26 through verse 31, the end of the chapter, verse 26, the beginning of the paragraph through 31, the end of the chapter. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes... And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in which is the fruit of a tree-yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat. And to every beast of the earth, to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Matthew, declaring the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew and chapter 28 beginning at verse 16 through the end of the chapter, declaring that great commission of our Savior. Matthew chapter 28, 16 through 20, by the same Spirit, the Apostle writes, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, The grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And once again, by his holy word, is the gospel presented unto us again this day. And God said, let us make man in our image. Now on the heels of the anticipation of the sovereign Messiah at the beginning of creation in Genesis 1, man is created on the sixth day from the dust of the earth, And he is given life by the Spirit of God. We see this in verse 7 of Genesis in chapter 2. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. That's what he was. He was dust. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And at that time, it declares unto us, and man at that time became a living soul. Now there seems to be a special emphasis on the fact that without the Spirit of God, 
without the Spirit of God breathed into this man, man is simply dust. That's what we are. Without the Spirit of God, man is simply dust. Mankind, however, is not created without a purpose. Mankind, both male and female, was created by the sovereign work of the Creator with meaning and purpose. And it is only the Creator who can dictate what that meaning and purpose is. All other attempts to redefine man's meaning and reason for existing ends in futility. I'll repeat that. All other attempts to redefine man's meaning and purpose, his reason for existing, ends in futility. The meaning of life's existence in every aspect of human civilization is clearly set forth by the Creator in Genesis chapter 1. And once again, Henry Morris explains it this way. He says, The book of Genesis gives vital information concerning the origin of all things and therefore the meaning of all things which would otherwise be forever inaccessible to man. And so from the beginning, God tells the human race why they exist. This segment of Genesis 1 deals with man's meaning and purpose. So after creating the heavens and the earth and all that therein is, he creates mankind. He creates Adam and Eve and he defines mankind as a divine image bearer with meaning and a distinct purpose for mankind's existence. In Genesis chapter 1, God sets forth, he's setting forth here a pattern for mankind to understand and then to follow as it concerns his life's meaning and purpose. Note first, mankind is created in the image and likeness of God by the direct instigation and intervention of God by the Spirit. In the same way, as the Spirit of God brooded over the face of the waters, He now, in a more intimate and direct and active display of power, breathes the breath of life into Adam and he becomes a living soul. This was a, in, an intentional act by God to take dust and give it real meaning. To take nothing and give it real life. The Reverend R.J. Rushton, he comments, he says, quote, For man to be created in God's image means that he is like God in every respect in which a creature can be like God. It means in the wider sense that man, like God, is a personality. But man is always different from God, although created in his image, in that he is still a creature. Man because he was created in the image of God, was created with the law of God in his being. For man to live in his original nature before the fall means to live in terms of God's law. Man, therefore, cannot escape knowing God. Man cannot escape knowing God. Cornelius Van Til explains what the effects are as it relates to being created in the image and likeness of God. He says this, quote, because man is created in the image of God to not know God, man would have to destroy himself. He cannot do this. There is no non-being into which man can slip in order to escape God's face and voice. The mountains will not cover him. Hades will not hide him. Nothing can prevent his being confronted with him and with whom we have to do. Whenever he sees himself, He sees himself confronted with God. Man is constantly confronted with God because he's created in the image of God. Secondly, 
as God anticipated the Lord Jesus Christ in the opening verses of Genesis chapter 1, with the words, in the beginning, and let there be light. Remember, Jesus is the light of the world. This is the, the distinction between light and darkness. So too does he further anticipate the Lord Jesus Christ by the creation of Adam. From the very beginning, God is already setting up the first Adam as a shadow of the last Adam, the coming last Adam, so as to explain the role and connection And there is a role and a connection between Adam and Christ, the first Adam and the last Adam, as well as the role and connection between mankind and the restorer of mankind. Let me put it this way, the destroyer of mankind and the restorer of mankind. And although Adam is the image and likeness of God, he is not the express image and likeness of God. That is reserved for none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The Reverend Joseph Moorcraft explains it this way. He says, quote, The true nature of the image of God cannot be understood apart from the restoration of that image in Jesus Christ. Even Adam and Eve, in their unfallen condition, did not reveal the image of God as perfectly and as clearly as Christ, because God cannot be known except in Christ, which is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature, the image of the invisible God. Reverend Hesslink, quoting from Calvin, adds this, quote, The true image is more clearly seen in Christ than in Adam, even in Adam's pristine state. Believers as well are only in the process of having that original image restored, which ultimately will be not only a restoration, but also an enhancement of that original image. For whatever excellence was engraved upon Adam it was derived from the fact that he approached the glory of his creator through the only begotten of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He continues, he says, even then, even then, in the very beginning, Christ was the image of God. The third point, after creating Adam, God immediately details the purpose of man as he is to relate to the world which God created. In other words, he just didn't create Adam and said, okay, now you're on your own, have a nice time, have at it, do whatever you like. No, he immediately sets the parameters of his life, his purpose and the reason for his existence. Notice, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. He immediately gives him parameters whereby he is to live. And, as we'll see in a moment, take dominion. Dr. Kenneth Gentry comments, he says, God created the world for a purpose. His creational intent in bringing the world into being was for the manifestation of his own glory. One vital aspect of man being created in the image of God is that of man's acting as ruler over the earth and under God. This is evident in the close connection regarding man's creation in the image of God and the divine command to exercise rule over the created order. Because man is in the image of God, he has the capacity and the responsibility for dominion. And he means righteous dominion. Now the commission of this dominion purpose, as I call it, was not commanded to be fulfilled by Adam the man only. Adam alone did not get the commission. It was also 
commanded to his wife, to assist in that commission. So this was also a commandment for his wife Eve. Both man and woman were given the dominion task. And so in verses 27 and 28, God interjects. So created man in his own image. And now remember, this word man is also the Hebrew word Adam, Adam. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them, and God blessed them, and God said unto them, and again, be fruitful and multiply, so on and so forth. Herein, in these two verses, lie the whole of man's purpose. Care for the creation that the Creator has given you as a stewardship by subduing all that might threaten it, including, including the temptation to sin, so as to maintain a righteous structure through that subjection and that dominion, and then, of course, be ye thankful. And it is in the fulfillment of this Genesis mandate that God is glorified. Man's relationship to the world is a creation fact. As God relates to the world which he created, so too must man, so too must we relate to the world which God created. Man cannot, if he is to fill his God-given duty his purpose, and the reason for his existence, man cannot separate from the world around him. Man cannot hide out or separate himself from the affairs of men and nations. Man was never created to live in a monastery, separated from the workings of the world around him. He was never created to be a pietistic or an ascetic. His eschatological purpose was dominion-oriented. Never was man's purpose to sit idly by, polishing their holiness, waiting for some heretical rapture event in order to be transported away from their duty and purpose of the dominion conquest here on earth in time and in history. That was not God's intention. Man was created to live in and take dominion of the world around him all for the glory of God. And so in order to give mankind a historical example of his meaning and purpose, God places Adam in the garden to become a fruitful gardener. This is what Adam was. He was to garden the garden. He was to be the gardener. And this meant that Adam was to cultivate, that's where we get our word culture from, he was to cultivate the garden by subduing all things that might threaten it, mainly, as I said, his own propensity to sin. And in doing so, he could then take dominion and replenish the earth with the assistance of his wife. Adam was to subdue any thoughts of evil that might rise up in his own mind, thus being able to take dominion over the plant life and every animal and every creeping thing that God had created in the garden. And herein is a lesson for all of us. Without the subduing of our own sin, we cannot be successful in fulfilling our purpose of gospel dominion conquest. And while we now live in sinful Babylon, we are not to act as sinful Babylonians. This dominion and subduing is called the dominion mandate or another phrase, the cultural mandate of Genesis 1, and 28. Moorcraft again observes, he says, God placed Adam in his garden to cultivate it and keep it. The garden needed tending and cultivating, and a part of the perfection of creation was the privilege and necessity of work on man's part. Adam was called to be an obedient gardener, that is, as a manager of creation to the glory of the owner of the creation. Earth and all its resources became man's stewardship to use and develop in terms of the revealed will of the creator of the universe, end quote. So in these two verses... 
all the resources of the earth were placed at the disposal of Adam in order to use it for God's glory and his purpose. The garden and all that was in the world was not to take dominion over Adam, but rather Adam was to subdue and take dominion over it. There is, however, a hard-cold fact connected to the reality that mankind is created in God's image, and that is mankind, all of mankind, is naturally dominion-oriented. Mankind, with every fabric of his being, seeks dominion. Dominion passion is the natural outworking of man's created in God's image. Even though that image is marred by the fall and now is sinfully self-centered and antagonistic against the Lord and against his Messiah, he still seeks dominion and the subjugation of the world around him. That's just natural to man. Everyone wants to take control of the world, to use its resources. That is the natural state of mankind. The difference is that he seeks dominion for himself and not for God. That's the difference. Natural man seeks dominion for all sorts of reasons, all of which revolve around his own lusts, whatever they might be. Money, position, fame, power, lust, or whatever satisfies the particulars of his fallen nature. But mankind seeks dominion. That is a natural fact. This activity is just another way to declare sinful man as God. They want to take dominion for themselves. They're God, so they want to take dominion for themselves. And this is true for the reprobate and sadly even for many who claim to be Christians, the children of God. Only the truly redeemed are able to harness and mortify old Adam's temptation for self-seeking dominion. Only then, by the effectual working of God, by the forgiveness of sins through the operation and the experimental operation of grace, are the redeemed able to faithfully seek dominion only for the glory of God. And so the question that we must ask is, are we seeking to take dominion for the kingdom of God and the glory of God or for our own, our own gratification or for our own gratification and profit? And that's the question. What is our life about? It seems as if when the unprofitable servant of Matthew 25 hid his talents in the earth, not only did he not use the talents for the Lord's purpose, but hiding it in the earth seems to indicate that he used it for earthly things, for his own things. Whenever a talent is invested in the earth, its use becomes earthly. The unjust steward had become unprofitable for the kingdom by abdicating his dominion mandate, for the glory of God. He replaced God's dominion mandate with his own dominion mandate. And as a result, God calls him an unprofitable servant. But notice in Matthew 25 that although he is called unprofitable, he is still referred to as God's servant. In other words, even the unjust are servants of God because they're all created in the image of God. They all have a meaning and a purpose. And when they abdicate that purpose, they are called unprofitable servants. And the fact that he was unjust, he was therefore illegitimate in the sight of God. Paul tells the Christians at Rome that the reprobates are called unprofitable, indicating that those that devote their talents exclusively for themselves and for earthly pursuits are rebellious and will eventually be damned if they refuse to repent. Note Paul's words. Note how he uses this word unprofitable. Romans chapter 3 verse 12. They, speaking of the reprobate, not the Christian, but the reprobate, the people that hate God, they are all gone out of the way. 
they are altogether become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Now, one of the themes in Scripture contrasts the idea of a lush and pleasant land with the idea of a wilderness desert land. So you have the two ends of the spectrum. The lush garden with greenery and beauty, and then the howling wilderness. Eden was a gloriously lush land with the abundance of natural resources that Adam was to use for its cultivation to the glory of God. But as a result of his rebellion, he is banished from the land into a wilderness desert, much like the Israelites after their exodus from Egypt. The entire earthly structure was now growing thorns and thistles. The land itself became cursed. And throughout the wilderness wanderings of Israel, they were always looking for the land of promise, a land flowing with milk and honey, both references to the gospel. Adam likewise, after his banishment out of the garden into what was probably a howling wilderness full of thorns and thistles, he was to look also for a land of promise. He was to look for a new land, a new area to develop as a garden now that the first had been lost. But once the original Eden was destroyed, this this new garden could not be established by mankind. Mankind could not regain what was lost. The Hebrew writer comments on this and he says in Hebrews 11:9 and following, By faith, Abraham sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which had foundations, whose builder and maker is God, not man, but God. Because only God could reestablish what was lost. The place where Abraham was to settle was not in the wilderness, but in the city of God, which was the restored Garden of Eden. God established the first Garden of Eden. He established the first garden. He had to establish the last. And this new garden could only be established by the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. Only Christ could deliver. Only Christ could make the crooked way straight. Only Christ could redeem man and the curse that the earth had to endure. And so he takes upon himself the mantle, the position and the title of the new Adam so as to restore what the old Adam destroyed. So you have the old Adam as the destroyer. You have the new Adam as the restorer. You have the old man which is always with us and we're seeking now to put down and to destroy the old man that is seeking to destroy us with the new man, Christ in us, the hope of glory. David Chilton observes, he says this, quote, When God created Adam, he placed him into a land and gave him dominion over it. Land is basic to dominion. Therefore, salvation involves a restoration to land and property. The task of dominion began in the Garden of Eden, but it was not supposed to end there. For man was ordered to have dominion over the whole earth. Adam and Eve and their children were to extend the blessing of paradise throughout the whole world. But when he rebelled, he lost the ability to have godly dominion because he lost fellowship with God. Christ came as the second Adam, the last Adam, in order to undo the damage brought about by the first Adam, the old Adam. And this is why Jesus quotes from Psalm 37 in the Beatitudes. 
declaring that the meek shall inherit the earth. This was a dominion declaration pointing back to Genesis chapter 1 and reminding his regenerate people, his regenerate army, of their meaning and purpose. The earth in view was to be the new Eden. It would be the new heaven and the new earth where righteousness would dwell. And this new heaven and new earth would begin in earnest at the incarnation of the beginning one, the Lord Jesus Christ, and it would be known as the kingdom of God. So when Jesus stated in Luke chapter 11, verse 20, but if I with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God has come to you. He was telling the people that the kingdom had come in him and by his incarnation and it would be effectuated after his resurrection by the work of his people preaching the gospel. After John the Baptist is placed in prison, Jesus reiterates this in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Isaiah alluded to the coming of the kingdom, identifying it as the new heaven and new earth, where all things were to be made new in Isaiah 65, 17. And remember, the prophets of old were pointing forward to the Christ that was to come, not to the end of the world. Notice what Isaiah says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. Only the new man, Jesus Christ, and his redeemed, those who are now new creatures in Christ, could establish this new heaven and new earth, which is simply another name for the kingdom of God. Peter understood the role of God's people in cultural reorientation when he stated in Second Peter 3.13, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. So if you want to think about the kingdom in this way, the kingdom of God is synonymous with the invisible church of Jesus Christ. The elect of God, we are the kingdom of God. The regenerate souls that have experienced the new birth are the kingdom of God, the church of the living Christ. And as we preach the gospel, the kingdom grows and grows where it's going to one day fill the whole earth. Peter is saying that now that the kingdom has come, now that there has been an evangelical explosion of born-again saints, by the pouring out of the Spirit, beginning in A.D. 33 at Pentecost, we are to work toward establishing a new world by the application of God's Word to the culture in fidelity and obedience. But this new world would not be established by the first Adam, who is identified as the man of the earth. Man cannot establish the kingdom. Man cannot establish the new earth, the new heaven. I don't care what the globalists think. I don't care what the politicians think. They cannot fix what is broken through politics or economics or globalism. They seek to be as God. They are building the Tower of Babel thinking, thinking that they can bring about a new heaven and a new earth. They are thinking that they can bring about righteousness and and, and justice and peace and equity, but they can't. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can. Through His people, the church, the kingdom of God. So this new world would not be and could not be established by the first Adam who is identified as the man of the earth but rather only the last Adam, the Lord from heaven could establish it. So drawing from the incarnation declaration of the gospel where John says in John 1.14 and the word was made flesh and tabernacled among us he now shares the result of that tabernacling. So as you think during the Advent season what is the result of of Christ's incarnation. What is the result of Christ's tabernacling with us? Well, John shares that. He first states it in verse 14 of chapter 1 of his gospel, and now he's going to reiterate as far as the 
ramifications, the result, the consequences of this tabernacling. And he does so in Revelation chapter 21. Notice, beginning in verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Pointing right back to verse 14 of John chapter 1. Revelation 21 happened when Jesus Christ came. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death because of the Christ of God. There is no more death to the saint. Neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away and he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. A new heaven, a new earth, a new man, a new birth. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. As the last Adam, Jesus' incarnation inaugurated the new heaven and the new earth, where he would reestablish the Garden of Eden in time and in history by the establishment of the eternal church of the living God. We are the Garden of God. When Adam was created, he was ordained as the covenant federal head over God's created order. He would remain the head only if, provided, only if he remained obedient to God's commission. But if he did not, things would change. Moses explains in Deuteronomy 28, And it shall come to pass, if thou, and think about it as if he is telling Adam this, or us, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and to do all of his commandments, which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, if, if, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. But then in verse 13 he says this, And the Lord shall make thee the head, if you remain obedient, and not the tail, and thou shalt be above only, and thou shalt not be beneath, if, if, if thou shalt hearken unto the commandments of the Lord thy God, which I command thee this day, to observe and to do them. So it's not enough to just observe them and give an academic assent. I know scripture, I know verse, I know this, I could do the other thing. Doing them. That's the hard part. Doing them. That's where the grace has to come in. That's where we need God's help in everything, in everything that we do. We need the grace of God. However, if Adam failed to fulfill his calling unto God, he would come under God's curse and no longer the head. He would then become the tail. He would then forfeit his position in the garden. And Moses explains this in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 28 and then in verse 43. Notice, but it shall come to pass if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. The stranger that is within thee shall get up high above thee, and thou shalt come down very low. He shall lend to thee, and thou shalt not lend to him. He shall be the head, and thou shalt be the tail. Adam was the head, the prince of the universe. But when he sinned, he became the tail. John Calvin comments on this. He says, This means that whosoever 
endeavors to serve God shall be set above, not beneath. This is, as it were, the height of all prosperity. Our Lord has made a promise to all the faithful that if they walk in His obedience, they should not be oppressed by the tyranny of men, but shall be sustained in liberty. Now you think about the nations of the world. Now you think about America, the nation of the world. Once a liberty nation. Once a nation of liberty people. People who love liberty. Who were free. Now oppressed. Why? Because we failed to acknowledge the commandments of God and to do what He had said. God's word is true. Let every man a liar, but let God's word be true. So after Adam's fall, his position as keeper and gardener of Eden became vacant. And he became oppressed by the tyranny of sin and subjected to death, the grave, and the tyranny of men. Throughout the Old Testament, God raised up prophets to declare the coming of the Messiah, who would then restore both the garden and the cultural commission as a resurrected gardener by establishing the kingdom of God on earth in time and in history through his church. This is why he reveals himself to Mary after the resurrection as the gardener. He could have revealed himself as anything. Yes, the carpenter's son, but no, the gardener. Why? To show himself as the one who would now cultivate the new Eden, he, as the last Adam, the faithful gardener, unlike the first Adam, the rebellious gardener, he would be the faithful gardener. In John twenty fifteen, we read this, And Jesus saith unto the woman, Why weepest thou, whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou would have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. So as the faithful gardener, Jesus restores what Adam lost. Jesus restores the Genesis commission of Genesis 1 in order to accomplish a universal cultural restoration under God. You see, the gospel is all about restoration. It's all about restoring that which is broken to that which is whole, whether it's people, churches, or nations. That is what the gospel is. That is what the incarnation is all about. In order to restore that which has been broken, that which has been destroyed, that which has become chaotic, that which has become ugly and sinful and wicked and evil, it is the task of the saint to restore. By the preaching of the word, by the application of the word, under Christ... As a result of the kingdom's coming, all things are being subdued unto him for his total dominion cultivation. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 25, 27, and 28. He says, For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. For he hath put all things under his feet. And when all things shall be subjected and subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So in this verse, Paul gives both the eschatological hope and the eschatological guarantee of dominion victory, which was solidified by the eschatological Christ, the incarnate Christ of God. You see, Paul is answering the question, and this is the question, is everything we do or build for the kingdom of God doomed to destruction at the end of the world in time and in history? And Paul's answer is a resounding no! The kingdom of God has come and it is coming in a greater and more perfect fashion as time continues by the fidelity of the saints. 
The Spirit has been poured out for the express purpose of redeeming souls and the reorientation of nations and people and families. Everything to the glory of God. As the church grows, the kingdom advances in numbers and in influence. But if the church hides out in the four walls of the ghetto, how can it be influential in restoration? The new heaven and the new earth is here and is coming in a more perfect fashion, provided the church faithfully stewards the culture by engaging it for the glory of God. When the Pharisees asked, when would the kingdom come? Jesus answered this way. In Luke chapter 17, beginning verse 20. And when he was demanded of the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation, Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. In other words, it's among you. The kingdom of God was already among them, both in the person and in the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and in his work. And it was in the work of the elect as the redeemed of God. It was already being established. The work of redeeming the culture had already begun. The body of Christ was being established and it was being established in a greater way once Pentecost came. The realization of the promise was at hand. The Reverend Dr. Klaus Schilder observes this. He says, paradise was the beginning. And in that beginning, everything was already there in principle that had to be there in potential in order for it to develop into a consummated world. But a historical process of many centuries is needed for it to come to its full-grown state. We are in that state. And because we are growing, there are growing pains within the realm of cultural activity. The kingdom of God matures by the work of the church through the declaration of the gospel in order to restore all things Godward. As a result of the new birth, God prepares what Schindler calls a new humanity of blood-bought laborers for the service of God. Notice what he says. God gives back to the new humanity. That's what we are. That's what we should be. A new humanity. No longer Babylonians. Living in Babylon, yes, but a new humanity within Babylon. God gives back to the new humanity, which was the old, the rich powers of his poured out spirit, the powers of sanctification, of ecclesiastical conquest, of of world cultivation, of cultural activity. He again makes men of God. That's what God is doing. He's making men of God. He continues, amid a crooked and perverse generation, He again erects specimens of the pure human race. They are not yet perfect. And let me say it this way. They do not yet walk on water. But in principle, they do exist. They exist from the very moment Adam bowed in faith under the first gospel promise of Genesis 3.16. And they are coming and increasing and becoming the great multitude of those sanctified by God in Christ. Their army is increasing and shall be completely numbered by the last day. Postmillennialism. By the last day. Adam was placed in the midst of culture. And he was called to cultivate the world around him for the glory of God by the dictates of God's law. Man cannot escape culture in the same way that he cannot escape his duty to cultivate the world around him and take dominion. So the question is this, 
What is the biblical concept of culture? Well, as I said before, the word culture is derived from the Latin meaning to cultivate. The difference between man's humanistic concept of culture and God's definition of culture is that man's idea of culture is the cultivation of the world for the benefit of man. But God is the God of culture. He is the originator and definer of culture. And therefore, God's conception and goal of culture is the cultivation of the world for His glory according to His mandate. Adam's commission of dominion and subjugation of the world was not for the benefit of his fellow man. It was for God's good pleasure. And man would benefit by it. As John clearly explains in Revelation 4.11, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For Thou hast created all things, notice what it doesn't say, for man's pleasure. It doesn't say that. Although we enjoy it. We enjoy the, the, the spring and the flowers, even sometimes the snow and the wind and the rain. It's all, for, it's all for our enjoyment. But that is not why God made everything. Notice John says it right here. And for thy pleasure, they are and were created. There it is. We benefit from all that God has created. Of course, man always will benefit from the proper cultivation of the world. But the motive if it is to be biblical, is to be theocentric, God-centered, in other words. Otherwise, it would be rebellion. Francis Nigel Lee explains the situation in the garden and its relation to culture. He says, quote, If and when Adam and his descendants had performed all these manifold tasks of cultivation faithfully and thereby kept God's moral law, they would thereby ultimately have earned unloosable blessedness. I love that phrase. Unloosable blessedness. That is, everlasting life as a permanent reward. However, he says, if Adam and his descendants tried to evade all cultural efforts by taking a shortcut to gain that knowledge by attempting to steal the utmost knowledge by eating of the forbidden fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which in fact they did, they would lose even that measure of life or blessedness with which they were created and suffered agony forever. See, what Adam did, he, he, he looked for the silver bullet. He looked for the shortcut. He wanted the silver bullet to his cultural commandment of dominion. No longer was he willing to work. No longer was he willing to subjugate and suppress anything that would come up against the garden, to threaten the garden. No longer was he willing to work. No longer was he willing to learn as he was called to learn. No longer was he willing to mature and become proficient in his dominion obligation so that he could eat from the tree of life, he instead sought for immediate satisfaction to his dominion responsibility by taking from the tree of knowledge. In a veiled implication to Adam's sin, Paul reminds the Thessalonians that he that will not work, neither should he eat. He's pointing right back to the garden. Because Adam was to work in the process of time and only after continued fidelity after continued diligence, only then, as he matured in obedience, then and only then, could he reap the blessing of the tree of life. Since the first Adam, however, refused to work, the last Adam had to do all the work that Adam failed to accomplish in cultivating the world by the sweat of his brow. But that sweat was not the natural perspiration of labor. 
Christ's sweat was that of blood, which was signifying his work of the atonement. And what is more astonishing is that Christ's blood shedding was in a garden, reminding us of the garden of Eden where Adam failed in his work of cultivation. It was the work of Christ that would redeem humanity and the world from the curse as his blood soaked the ground. It too was being reoriented from thorns and thistles to the lushness of a garden of Eden. And so Christ returns to the garden where it all began in order to repair the breach caused by Adam's rebellion, in order to restore what was lost, in order to reorient all things that had been destroyed by Adam. As a result of the new birth, we are called to work in the cultivation of the world Godward so as to eat from the tree of life which is found only in and by the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if we do not work, neither shall we eat. As Reverend Lee explains, he says, quote, Adam could never undertake all the tasks of dominion alone, and neither was this expected of him. When God made his covenant with Adam, he made it with all of Adam's descendants as well. This is one of the chief reasons why God commanded man to multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. For Adam could never subdue it alone. Only by multiplying could man subdue the earth, namely subdue it in and through his descendants. So... God committed these tremendous tasks of developing the world's culture to all mankind, to every scientist, to every farmer, to every technician, to every teacher, to every housewife, to every single one of us, end quote. Man's cultural obligations endure until the very end of history as long as man is upon the earth. But as Reverend Lee fully understood, this task can only be fulfilled by God's elect, by his new creation, those new creatures, those new creatures in Christ Jesus. Because true culture can only be realized by the work of Christ and God's elect when the dominion mandate is executed for the glory of God. First in us, then in our families, then in our church, then in our community, then in the nation, and then in the world. Dr. Nigel Lee says this, Adam and his culture must not die but live. And so immediately after the fall, God intervened to save man and his culture. The word of God, the son himself, guaranteed that he personally would ultimately come down to earth and fulfill the promise of Genesis 3.15, where he declared, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Adam and Eve then, both believing in the coming Savior, were saved and lived And their dying culture revived with them, but only through the Lord Jesus Christ. So then the question, I guess, is this. Should we not be involved in the culture? Or to put it another way. So the question may not be, should we be involved in the culture? The question really is, which kind of culture are we to be involved in? And how are we to change what is bad, into what is good? How do we reorient that which is destroyed into that which is right? We have to decide, are we going to build a godly culture or a godless culture? And that begins with the individual. It moves to the family and to the church as we seek by the preaching of the gospel and the application of his word to reorient all things Godward to the glory of God.
Next, we shall explore the actual fall and the first verbal declaration of the gospel hope in Genesis chapter 3, where we will come face to face with Adam, Eve, the serpent, and the crushing of all evil. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.